Hi, I'm Katrina Adams, and you are listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome, I'm Fabio Molly, your host. Today I speak to Katrina Adams. Katrina is a former top 70 singles and top 10 doubles player who successfully transitioned into tennis roles after life on the court. She was president and CEO of the USTA and currently holds positions as VP of the ITF, chair of the Billie Jean Cup, chair of gender equality in the ITF, executive director of the Harlem Junior Tennis and Education Programme. She's also recently released a book earlier this year called Own the Arena, Getting Ahead, Making a Difference and Succeeding as the Only One. And we'll find out all about it in my chat with her. As usual, before we get started, a shout out to our podcast sponsors, Slinger, who make the awesome portable ball machine, the Slinger Bag. Head over to slingerbag.com to get all the info on the bag. And as usual, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me. Okay, here's Katrina. Hi, Katrina. Welcome to Functional Tennis Podcast. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm very good. It's an honor to have such a legend of the game on and off the court on the podcast. You've achieved so much from, as I said, on the court and off the court and can't wait to hear more about that and all your book and all the other accomplishments you've had and especially running the the US Open. Quickly, let's start off. Tell us a bit about your tennis career. You were what top 60, 70 singles, top 10 doubles, you were ahead of your time. Tell us quickly a bit about that, what it was like playing tennis back in the day and how I'm sure you were breaking barriers. Yeah, I wouldn't say it was ahead of my time. It was just my time. So listen, I had a great run for 12 years, you know, met some incredible players who are lifelong friends, got to travel all over the world and meet some amazing people along the way. But you know, I was able to have a professional career at a sport that I loved and that I was good at and, and um, you know, happy to still be in the sport today, just on a, a different path. What is your fondest memories? What's your grandchildren moments when they ask you, what's your best moment on court or what do you remember the most? Yeah, you know what? It's a lot of, it's a lot of great memories, but, you know, I would say the first tournament I won was a doubles tournament I played with Zena Garrison. It was the first time we'd ever played together and we won you know, one of our top tier events in Boca Raton. It was the Virginia Slams of Boca Raton. So that was obviously a thrilling moment and something that you never forget when it's the first time. You know, first time playing at Wimbledon. I got to the fourth round of singles, lost to Chris Everett in three sets and and got to the semis of doubles. And then there, you know, there's several other memories, but I would say it's those, you know, in that first year, first time doing something is always the the most memorable. Yeah, it means a lot. And you did, you got quarters in all the slams? Quarters and the doubles of all the slams. So, you know, I played, I uh, had some great partners along the way. Played with Zena Garrison for about four years. Played with Manon Bolograf from Holland for about four years. We had, uh, you know, two or three other doubles partners along the way. And so, you know, I always had fun on the court with a partner and, you know, high energy and, and high jumping, high rolling type of player. And, um, you know, I've just been very fortunate to be able to have that on my on my resume. That's where the Brian brothers got it from, is it? I wish I could say that, but uh, let me tell you something. Those guys were the best of the best. I don't think anyone will ever match them or exceed what they, the Brian brothers, have done in their career. I agree. I completely agree. And do you still play a bit of tennis? 
A little bit. I've had some some knee injuries, and so I, you know, I get out there and hit a little bit, um, but not to go out and play doubles matches. It's just to be on the court and you know hitting the ball right now. Tell me, you're from Chicago, and was there a Chicago term? I know they've just recently had come back to Chicago. There, you must have been really excited with tennis back in Chicago. Yeah, no. Listen, I visit probably uh, three or four times a year, and you know, Chicago is where it all started for me. I have great support there. I was just inducted into the Chicagoland Sports Hall of Fame alongside several other great athletes and, and other sports. So, you know, it's nice to be honored and to be recognized, but. I get back whenever I can. And you know, our high school that I went to, Whitney Young High School, just got their courts resurfaced for the first time ever. And so it's, you know, it's beautiful blue and orange courts, which are the colors, the scheme of the of the high school. But you know, tennis is growing, I think, nationwide. And um and Chicago is definitely a great town and great city that supports tennis in the public parks and in and in the private clubs. So your tennis career, you finished up. What happened after, what was your first role when you hung up the rackets? Yeah, you know, when I retired, I actually became a national coach for the USTA. And I was working with our top juniors who were, you know, making that transition from the juniors directly to the pros. You know, I had the honor of working with some of the, and these were on the girls' side. I worked with the boys and the girls. But on the girls' side, these were players like Jamea Jackson, Carly Gullickson, Corianne Avon, Shadisha Robinson. And others. And, and so it was really good. Ashley Harker wrote as well. So it was nice to be able to, to, to work with them and, and see these aspiring young players wanting to make it to the next level. All of those players that I mentioned did, which was a, a success. But I also got to spend time with some of the boys who went on to do great things and Robbie Ginepri and John Isner, Jermaine Jenkins and, and others. And so, you know, that was kind of a highlight and focusing on on the juniors. And then I had a chance to, to work with a college player, B. Bielik, who was an NCAA champion at Wake Forest. I spent a year with her on the road before, you know, hanging up my rackets um, and coaching. And, and then moved into the commentating side and started working for Tennis Channel when they flipped their switch in 2003. You've done a bit of it all, all the angles of tennis. Did you enjoy being on the road at all? I loved it. You know, I loved it. I still love traveling. You know, I've slowed down, obviously, from my playing days, but it was pretty rapid when I was a president of the USTA. I was, you know, every week I was somewhere, whether it was for a day, two days, a week or two weeks, you know, between meetings and appearances and, and promoting promoting the sport. Uh, I was on the road often. And and so uh, it's in my DNA, I guess. I mean, listen, I started playing tennis when I was six. I played my first tournament at seven. And so I've, I've always traveled. So it's uh, it's something that I enjoy doing. Nice. And after so, you got into a bit of commentating for the Tennis Channel. What was the route from there? I know you worked a bit with the USTA into becoming the head honcho at the, at the USTA. I joined the board of the USTA, and that's really what started the trajectory and the opportunities for me to ascend and kind of move up the ranks. And so that was just the, you know, I was an elite athlete, which was a, a player within 10 years of their retirement that met a certain criteria based on the USOPC rules. And, and so that's each governing body, which the USTA is, we had to have 20% of those board members were elite athletes. And that's really how I got introduced to the board. And and once I got involved in the organization, I, I really started to learn more about who the USCA was and how they function and what, 
you know, it's really about grassroots and we're fortunate enough to own the U.S. Open uh, where we make the money to be able to fund all of our programs and sections and districts that way. And that's something I was like, wow, you know, I had no idea this is, this is what the USTA did. When you're a junior, you play USTA tournaments, you have a USTA ranking, you know, you may play Fed Cup or Davis Cup if you were lucky enough or good enough back then which is now the Billie Jean King Cup and Davis Cup and representing your country and then to be able to represent, you know, your nation at the Olympics. Um, but, you know, when you really learn the ins and outs and, and how much people really give back to the sport to help others, um, that's something that I gravitated to, that I latched on to and really wanted to be more engaged and, and, and have an opportunity to truly make a difference. And so over the years, as I moved up and, and continued to be on the board, then I had an aspiration to want to be the president and, you know, and set the strategic vision and, and strategy and the priorities for the organization to help promote and develop the growth of tennis in America. And you did a lot in helping grow tennis, grassroots tennis in underprivileged areas. You really spent a lot of time and attention trying to grow those areas. I did. And I, I mean, I continue to. It's something that, you know, I, I know what tennis did to me. I, I grew up in the inner city of Chicago. And the opportunities that tennis gave me as a child, as a teenager, as a young adult, and then as an adult, was something that I want everybody to have that experience in doing. Not everybody's going to be a professional tennis player, but tennis is a sport for a lifetime. It's something that can elongate your health, elongate your life uh, through great health. And it's something that, you know, it's, it's fun. It's something that you can share with others. You can share with your family. You can share with your friends. And so I, I continue to stay involved today being the vice president of the ITF, which is the International Tennis Federation. Yeah, we get onto the ITF in a few moments, but I have a Hopman Cup question for you. Did you know we have over 170 great episodes with coaches, players, trainers, and experts working at the highest level of the game? Tap the subscribe button on your podcast app so you don't miss out on the latest episodes of the podcast. And to listen to our great back catalogue of episodes with the biggest game changers in tennis, go to functionaltennispodcast.com. But regarding your roles at USTA, maybe you can tell us all the different hats that you wore there because, as you say, there's, there's the grassroots, there's the performance, there's the events... What was a typical day like there for you? It must have been crazy. The U.S. Open is about a team of people. Everybody has their role. Everyone has their function. Our leadership team, you know, while I was there was amazing and did unbelievable job. So, you know, the mornings were, you know, top of the morning would be meetings, of course. You know, I'd go out to the facility probably around nine o'clock, if not before, with some meetings and, and get the lay of the land for the day. And, you know, really... As a president, I really did a major job of kind of hosting our international guests, our local guests, a lot of our donors to local programs or to community programs, not so much local, but around the country. And, you know, and, and, this, and the staff kind of did what they did, you know, from the tournament director and their team, from our COO and his team and all the other senior staff. So it was really, uh, you know, I was engaged throughout the day and, and kept abreast of anything arise um, that needed my attention, but it was really about, you know, working as a team and everybody doing their role. And, and we continue to do that or they continue to function that way today. Was there any particular U.S. Opens that stood out to you the most? No, I mean, listen, uh, you know, every Open is different in their way. I think my first Open in 2015, it was the hype 
of Serena Williams going for the Grand Slam that year, of which she fell short. So that was a lot of hype. You know, every year was different. And I think it was, you know, a testament to the participation of the players, to the staff, to the media, you know, et cetera. I think in 2017, that was a year that Sloan Stevens won and beat Madison Keys in the finals. We had four women, four Americans in the semifinals. The other two were uh, Venus Williams and Coco Vandeweghe. So that was an extraordinary year. You know, we hadn't had that, I don't think ever, even though we had a, a amazing American champions back during the day. It was also the first year that we had two women of color in the finals since Venus and Serena. And so it was, uh, you know, those were, those were special moments for me to be able to, to be out there. And then, of course, in 2018, you know, it was a debacle with the women's finals match with Serena Williams and Naomi Osaka, which, uh, you know, forever lives in, in people's minds. But, you know, every year is a different year. You never know what you're going to expect, right? Yeah, you missed the last couple of years. I'm sure it would have been tough there with with COVID. It's been a challenge. But I know your book uh, owned the arena. Now, I haven't read it yet. As I was telling you before this, it's on the Christmas list. But as far as I know, you talk about experiences left. You experiences you learned after tennis. Am I correct? No, experiences learned through tennis. So it, it's the life lessons that you learn because of the sport of tennis. You know, I think the life skills that we learn by playing our sport, understanding how to deal with adversity, being resilient, um, building your self-confidence, your self-esteem, being disciplined, understanding how to you know manage time. All these things, all of these characteristics are needed through life, right? And no matter what we do, whether it's in school, whether it's in business. And so through those life lessons and my competitive experiences and my traveling experiences, you know, you live and you learn and you soak up all of these opportunities that you've had and the, and the people that you've met to kind of build and mold who you are as an individual. And so I shared a lot of those experiences in the book that I felt made me who I am today, that allowed me to become the leader that I became and to share some of those qualities and experiences with the rest of the world. It's own the arena, getting ahead, making a difference and succeeding as the only one. And that only one for me in many instances was being the only woman in the room, in a boardroom or a meeting, being the only person of color in, in many arenas as well. And, and so I'm sharing it from my perspective to hopefully help others who may be in similar situations. Because at any given moment, you are the only one of something in some arena, in some space, in some room, in some meeting, whether it's the only male, only female only person of color, only white person, only whatever. And so I think it's important to recognize that you're not alone in these instances. And, and perhaps maybe some of my experiences that I've shared with you will make it easier for you, you know, and owning your courage and owning your voice and, and understanding how to own the table because you're invited to the table for a reason. And I think a lot of people, the first time they go into a boardroom or a big meeting, you know, they're the kind of tongue shy and they don't speak up. They kind of sit back and, and, and let everyone else speak. But you're invited because of your, your knowledge and your expertise and people want to hear it. And so just make sure that you're prepared when you go into these spaces, into these rooms, into these meetings so that you can, can share the knowledge that people know that you have to help solve a, a greater problem or issue, if you will. 
So your book, it helps empower people. Absolutely. It's, a, it's inspirational. It's empowering. You got hit it right on the nail on the head. I know this is more on-court stuff than off-court stuff, but it's a lot of it's confidence-related. People believe in they can do something. And obviously, results can come from that. But as you say, you can apply that off-court as well. And it's how do you apply that? So that's very interesting. It's available, obviously, in all good bookstores and Amazon. And Yeah, you can get it in most bookstores uh, or online. You know, you can just Google it, Own the Arena. It's a great Christmas gift, a great holiday gift. You know, it's meaningful. It's inexpensive. And it's thoughtful. So hopefully uh, people will, you know, listen to this and go on. Or you can go to my website, which is katrinamadams.com. Click on the book and it'll take you to several different links of your choice. We'll have a link in the show notes. But how equality has that become? What's the message right now that you see from where you stand? I chair the Gender Equality and Tennis Committee for the ITF, you know, and our focus is to really grow our numbers of participation on all of all levels of the sport, not so much on participation. We're doing a really good job with, you know, getting girls into the sport. Girls and boys are pretty much equal when they enter the sport. It's just keeping them in the sport. But we want to to see on the management side, on the, on the volunteer side, we want to see more women in leadership roles on committees, on commissions, on their boards, you know, being the chair of their boards, being the CEO of their, of their federations. And so we, you know, we've had a multitude of webinars this year through our Advantage All platform and inspiring and empowering our women with the tools that they need to build their self-confidence and their thought process of wanting to be even more engaged in that. And so that's something that I've been focused on for the last five years. But as we look through our sport, I know even on the professional side, you know, we're, the WTA are still fighting for prize money equality in, in their events. I mean, we have prize money equity in, or parity in, in the Grand Slams, but not necessarily at the tour level. And that's something that hopefully in my lifetime, you know, I'll see. And hopefully I don't have to wait for it to be in my lifetime. Hopefully I live a very long time. Yeah. But hopefully, you know, in the next five years, we can really start to see that gap close. I definitely think it, it's closing and closing and you may even over you may even overtake the men. That would be great. That's not equality then, is it? Yeah, it's payback. It would be payback. <laughs> <laughs> Years of payback. But you may not have an answer for this, but which are you more proud of your on-court or off-court work? You know, my on-court is 12 years. My off-court is my life. So I would have to say off-court because it's something that I continue to give back to on a daily basis. You know, I, I run, I'm the executive director of the Harlem Junior Tennis and Education Program, which is an NJTL chapter here in New York City in Harlem. And I've been there 16 years. And it's really about providing an opportunity for these kids putting a racket in their hand, teaching them the, the sport of tennis, but teaching them the life skills that they need to not only be champions in tennis, but to be champions in life. And so everywhere I go, you know, I'm making sure that I'm trying to speak to a group of youth, not necessarily tennis players, but just youth to inspire them to be the best that they can be and understand that, you know, the world is their oyster and for them to own their destiny. And if I'm not making a difference in something that I'm doing or don't feel that I can make a difference, I probably won't do it. Okay. And Venus is involved in that too. Yeah. Venus has been a great supporter of our program for many years. You know, my program and many programs like mine around the country. And so very fortunate to have that relationship and partnership with her this year with Cliff Bar to promote what we're doing and to support 
you know, what we're doing and how we're delivering our sport to our youth. Nice, Katrina. And I just want to end this with one more question. Uh, you've been obviously around tennis for a long time, in and out, off the court, as we've mentioned. But do you have any advice for parents out there who have young kids that are playing, that who want to be professionals? You know, they're on the tennis journey, they're gifted, they may not make it, they may, they may go to college. What advice do you have for the parents out there? Because most time we give advice for the kids or for the players, but for the parents, what can we say to them? I think the most important thing is that the parents allow their kids to want to play the sport first and foremost, allow them to have fun because it is a sport. And if they're having fun with what they're doing, they will work harder and they can go further. But if the parents are pushing their child who don't want to play, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's important for the parent to introduce the sport to get them in the sport and you push them for a couple of years to see if they kind of buy into it. But, you know, if they buy into it, great, then keep doing what you're doing. But if they don't buy into it and they really don't want to be out there, don't push them into it. You know, allow them to play another sport or, or get into the arts and crafts, whatever that might be, that's going to better better that child. I've seen too often um, our, our young players who, once they turn 18 or, or you know, get out of college, never pick up a racket again because they hated it. They hated how they were driven into the sport and pushed by their parents. And then those, even those relationships with their parents are broken. So it's so important that, you know, the kid really loves it. Those are the ones that really exceed because they truly love it. And those are the ones that go to the next level and to the next level. Yeah, no, that's good advice. Thank you very much, Katrina. And look forward to reading the book. And have a great Christmas and a great 2022. Thank you and uh, happy holidays to you and uh, have a healthy and prosperous new year. Really hope you enjoyed that chat with Katrina, who continues to do amazing work in the world of tennis and outside of tennis. Wishing you a lovely Christmas. Take care and I'll be back. Bye. Bye.